Colossians 3 is where we turn again this morning. It's a pretty straightforward text, and yet the weight of it is heavy upon us, I think, because of the great impact that Christ has in our lives. This text, as we come to it, really is life-altering. It is life-changing. It helps us to understand and appreciate how we interact with life and how we interact with each other and how we interact with temptation and invitations or solicitations to do evil. We have a different standard, a different foundation from the world, and Colossians 3 helps us understand these things. Colossians 3 and verse 1, I'm going to actually back up as we have been reading uh, this longer text as it began back in chapter 2, verse 20, and then through uh, verse 4 of chapter 3. Colossians 2.20 says, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? Do not handle, nor taste, nor touch which deal with everything destined to perish with use, which are in accordance with their commands and teachings of men, which are matters having, to be sure, a word of wisdom and self-abasement and, and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him in glory. We saw, going back to that verse 20, this parallel idea of having died with Christ, that our identity as Christian believers is we are connected with Christ here, in verse 20, with his death. And he's mentioned this before in chapter 2, that we are we have died with Christ and we are raised up with him as well. There's these two ideas he brings out here in verse 20 and then starting in chapter 3. You've died with him and you've been raised up with him. Now, there is the sense in which that is true. In fact, our, our baptism, our Christian baptism, gives testimony. I don't think that even earlier in chapter 2 he was talking about you were baptized uh, into his into his death. I don't know that he's talking about the water baptism, but if you've ever seen a water baptism uh, dunking, as it were, an immersion, uh, and you happen to be in a place where you were able to see an American Sign Language uh, person interpreting the what's going on with the events there, the sign, as I understand it, for baptism or to baptize is, and you can do it here, if you want to hold your two thumbs up, clench your fingers like this, and go down and back up. And it's interesting that they do it with two fingers, or two, your thumb a finger, we'll count five fingers, right? So that's a, it's a finger, it's a thumb, I don't care. Uh, but you hold it like this, and it's two. Why is it two? And it goes down, and it comes back up. I don't want to read too much into it. I, there might be a reason for it. I have no idea. That's probably the, one of the only signs that I uh, know and understand. But it pictures exactly what's going on in baptism. It is an immersion. It's a burying with Christ. And it's a rising up together with him. It's two happening in, in tandem. And it is this idea that we are identified. We are in Christ. There's so much. I think over 260 times just in the New Testament we have varying phrases, varying ideas 
uh, because this, this is talking about if we've died with Christ, if we were raised with Christ, this idea of our identity, our union with Christ is all through the scripture. We can talk about being in Christ or in Jesus or in the Lord or with Jesus or um, with Christ or uh, any number of prepositions talking of our, describing our identity, our union with Christ all throughout the scripture. Uh, Paul says that elsewhere in Galatians, one, probably his first or one of his first letters he wrote in uh, chapter uh, 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He talks about that identity that, that believers have. Paul is not unique in that way. Every believer has that great privilege. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. There is that intimacy, that union that we have with Christ, having died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, and now having been raised up with him, that we ought to set our minds on things above, not on the things that are on earth. This passage in, in Colossians 2 and then into chapter 3 and even a little bit into chapter 4 is all about the basis for the Christian life and then having that basis, which is totally different from the world, but having that basis, how should our lives bear fruit? How should our lives be different? And he says, we saw it at the end of, of chapter 2, it's not based on what you don't do or restrictions on food or drink or even marriage, as maybe that idea is, is uh, existent here in, in these verses. We can put any number of rules and actually... There's no limit to the number of rules that we could put on ourselves, and more specifically, we put on other people. It's easier to have other people obey the rules than for me to have to do it, right? Uh, but to tell you you've got to do this, that, and the other thing, that makes us feel good. It, it boosts, boosts our pride. It boosts our arrogance, our self-righteousness, our loving the Lord, maybe just a little bit, but really loving ourselves because of we've done these things uh, for our own selves. These are commands and teachings of men. They seem, they have the appearance of wisdom. They seem, whoa, that's pretty persuasive what you're telling me to do. But um, it has no value. No value. Verse 23. There's so much of what the world celebrates, so much, unfortunately, of what the church celebrates, which is just nothing. If it's not based on Christ, then it does not profit. I was talking to the grandfather of the groom yesterday, and he is a, a good, godly Christian man. He wanted, and he had opportunity to speak to the um, assembly a couple different occasions. But he said, you know, the main thing I want my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren even to know, and all the people, is Christ. Christ is what matters. Not all this other stuff, not this position or that, but it's Christ. Give your attention to him. When Paul transitions now into chapter 3 then, he has built all this wonderful foundation. He's transitioning into the, the implications of the gospel. He's spoken all about the beauty of it, the reality of it, the substantive propositional truth of the gospel. And he says, that's not just doctrine. That's not just you know truth to study and, and kind of classify and organize and write it up in an encyclopedia and then walk away and do nothing about it. He says there are implications. There are I wouldn't even say requirements. It's an obvious statement. It's an obvious, uh, you're in Christ, so this is how you ought to live. This is how you want to live. He says, if you have been raised up with Christ, 
it's not a question of if, like, I don't know if you have or not, you better go back. And it's this idea of since or because you have put your faith in Christ. I mean, if you could, you'd go back in chapter one and read how often Paul referred to the faith which they have in Christ and the love that they have for all the saints and, and that he is convinced of their their salvation uh, spoken of through Epiphras, uh, his, uh, his beloved brother in the Lord and the one who started the church there in Colossae, that they were uh, fully given to the gospel, which is bearing fruit in them and, and in other people as well. Back in chapter one, you could, could read about that. But he says it's not enough just to give assent, just to say, yeah, the gospel is good and you ought to believe the gospel. The gospel makes a different difference in your daily life. He's transitioning here from these first four verses, get, and it starts with therefore, based on all this wonderful doctrine, truth, the substantive reality of your identity in Christ, therefore this is how you ought to live. And again, it's not a, a, a me holding a, a whip over your back and saying, do this and do that and do this. It's not even me doing that to myself. It is an orientation realizing what has God done for me? It is adoration, it is praise, it is abject love and worship of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he has done for us. If you have been raised up with Christ, if since you have been raised up, and it has happened. Now, different folks have gotten in trouble. First Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection, right? And when that happens and so forth. But Paul says in that context there, that some are preaching that the resurrection has already happened, which it hasn't. And you think, well, wait a minute. He says that we've been raised up with him, that we have died with Christ. But then he also talks, like in Romans 7, well, I still have this fleshly body around me. How am I going to live? How am I going to honor God through my fleshly body? Well, back in chapter 2 of Colossians, he talked about that we've been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh, but the circumcision of Christ. You think, well, that hasn't happened yet. How, in the, how do we understand these things? Well, it's one of those other things. For example, is the kingdom of God here or is it yet to come? Yep. It is here, and it's yet to come. Is God Lord over all nations on, on earth and Lord of all, uh, you know, the, the backside of the moon and the far Mars and the planet we haven't eaten? Yes, he's Lord of all those things. Is there a time coming when he will be declared Lord? Yes. God the Father said to him, Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Well, that hasn't happened yet. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 also speaks about that, that there is... There are things that are not yet subject to him. We think, well, how can that be? Well, yes and no. It, it has happened. It is happening. It will happen. Are you saved? Yes, I have been saved. Am I being saved? Yes. Will I be saved? Yes. All these things are true. How in the world have we been raised up together with Christ? We are given a new life, a new spirit, a new heart. The promises that God made through Ezekiel and Jeremiah and the Old Testament are true for us, that we have we, we, he's taken away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh that we should love and adore God the Father and Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit. You have been raised up with Christ. It's something you look forward to when the dead are raised into incorruptible or imperishable bodies. That's what we look forward to. But even now, there is that reality that we have been raised up with Christ. This idea of being raised up is all through the scripture. It goes even back to the father of, of the faithful Abraham, who believed God, of course, and was reckoned to him as righteousness, but he believed God specifically for the resurrection of his son Isaac, whom he was supposed to kill 
to sacrifice him as the burnt offering to the Lord on the mountain, which God would show to him. And Hebrews helps us to understand that thing, that God, you said my descendants going to come through Isaac. You told me to kill Isaac. I guess you're going to have to bring him back from the dead to fulfill your promise. Abraham was a literalist, if you don't mind in that regard, and said, well, it's, it's, it's through Isaac, so obviously you're going to have to bring him back. Well, that's what God did figuratively by bringing a, sac a sacrifice, a substitute to die in the place of Isaac. The resurrection is all through the scripture. Job, in fact, one of the earliest guy, probably a, a, a um, compatriot or contemporary of, of Abraham, a time of the patriarchs anyway, Job said that even though he slay me, yet will I see God. In my flesh, I will worship God. Well, whoa, what is this, what is this about? Resurrection is all over the place, but it is specifically in Christ himself. Other folks may have been uh, revived, resuscitated. You think of Lazarus, for example. You think of the daughter of Jairus. You think of other people who have been, were raised up to life. Well, guess what? We don't see them walking around with their resurrection bodies still because their bodies were not resurrected. Well, their spirit was returned to their fleshly bodies and they became alive again, but they were not given a imperishable resurrection body as Christ was. He is the first fruits in that regard. All these things are pictures helping us to understand what is the reality that's going on here. We have new hearts within us. We have new spirits. There's a time coming when God himself will even raise up our bodies. But now I think he's focusing on that spiritual reality. Just as we can say, is the kingdom of God here or is it coming? Yes, it's here in us, through us. We are representing, we are ambassadors of King Jesus. And yet there's a time coming when he will be enthroned in Jerusalem. He will rule over all. And there's a time even after that when all heaven and earth will pass away, but Christ will be king over that new Jerusalem, and he will come to rule and to reign. So there's this beautiful reality that we experience to some degree now, but we also look forward to the full measure of it later. Paul says, because of that, because you have been raised up with Christ, and by the way, it's not with anybody else. It's not with your your grandpa. It's not with your, uh, your wife. It's not with your favorite dog. Uh, it's with Christ. Christ is our only hope. He is the only substantive basis for our life. If Again, that's why, you know, go back, going back to the Passover time, the song that, that our Jewish friends sing about Dainu, it would have been enough. It wouldn't have been enough for God just to bring us out of Egypt. It wouldn't have been enough for God to give us the Ten Commandments. It wouldn't have been enough to give us the Sabbath day. It wouldn't have been enough to give us these different laws and all this stuff. No, the only thing that is enough, that is satisfying, the only real hope that we have is in Christ. If you have died with Christ... If, excuse me, have you, if you have been raised up with Christ, if Christ, as he says later, is our life, then how ought we to live? Again, it's not something that's driving us from behind. It's really an internal love and desire for being with Christ. This union we have with him is something that we experience now. It's something we look forward to. That promise that we shall see him just as he is because we will be like him. There won't be any veil between us. There will not be uh, this, this veil of flesh, this veil of tears, this, this uh, separation that we have from Christ. We look forward to that day when we will be with him. He is our life. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. And when he is revealed, we ourselves will be revealed in him. He says here, you have been raised up with Christ. He is our orientation. He is our new center. He is our 
basis for life. He is the one that we celebrate. He's the one that we draw near to. He's the one that we find any measure of confidence in this world, not based on our, our checking account balance or our retirement fund or uh, which vehicles we have in our driveway or, or if you're some of those fortunate people who are able to park your vehicles in a, in a what do you call it, a garage, um, then, you know, it's not any of that stuff that we can boast in those things. We boast in Christ, Christ crucified, Christ raised from the dead, and our crucifixion in him, our resurrection in him. We have been raised up with Christ. Because of that reality, then, we have these two imperatives. And it's interesting why this translation says, keep seeking, and then in, in verse 2, set your mind this, these, these are two imperatives, which is, which is a command, uh, an instruction, as not man-made, even though Paul is a man, he was speaking on behalf of God. This is God's word speaking to us because of this reality, not because, as the false teachers in Colossae would say, somehow you need to be justified. Yes, Jesus can help you in that, but you've got to do this, that, and the other thing as a basis of your salvation. And now, as he gets into the the living out of your of your. Uh, identification as a Christian, the the sanctification part or the the living part, the practical part. Well, it's the same basis, same foundation. Christ is that foundation. Christ is a, is the, the basis of our justification, being declared righteous, and practically in our daily lives, being made more like Jesus, being sanctified. It's based on what Christ has done. Our life is buried, is our hidden with Christ and God. Because of that, do you remember back when Jesus was ministering and he was up in Galilee? This is in Luke 7, I believe. He was invited to the home of a Pharisee. And the Pharisee, of course, had a nice meal for him. If you want to look at it, it's Luke 7. And the the Pharisee, of course, was trying to pass judgment on Jesus and, and do uh, mean and nasty things, trying to trip him up and, and find fault with him. But there was this lady that came in. And actually, it's not Luke 7. Where is it now? Well, I'll tell you the story because I can't remember. I can't find it here. This lady came in and she was not, she was a lady of the street. And she had a bad reputation. The Pharisees was thinking, at least in his heart, if this, if this Jesus is really a prophet, if he's whatever he claims to be, then he ought to know what kind of person this is. Because she came in with an expensive deal of, of perfume and anointed Jesus' feet and then wiped his feet with her hair. And Jesus asked the, the Pharisee, uh, okay, there were the, the two guys owed a bunch of money to, the, to, the, to, the, to, the, uh, to this uh, person and uh, one of them was forgiven. So which one will love him more? Which one of the servants will love the, the, um, the master? And the Pharisee rightly replied, well, the one that was forgiven more should love more. And Jesus says, you've rightly spoken. He said to the lady that her sins were forgiven because they were much. They were bad. But she loved Jesus because she was her only hope, because her hope was not based in the Pharisees. All they required is rules and all these, these things to do. But Christ desires repentance. He desires love, adoration of him. Not of the rules. What are the rules for? The rules, even the rules of the of the um, the Mosaic law, was was to direct us to Christ. The law as a schoolmaster to lead us to what? More rules, more regulations. To Christ, the law is a schoolmaster, a tutor, a, a shepherding influence to lead us to Christ and His beauty and His glory. He says, "If you have been raised up with Christ, what should you do? 
He is the object of your worship. He is the object of your life. The orientation of your souls is now directed against him. It's no longer based on what we can gain in this world. This world is fleeting. It's going away. Uh, I often quote my father-in-law. He says, uh, it's getting harder and harder to lay up treasures on earth. This, what Jesus said in Matthew 6 is true. You cannot, well, you can, you can try, but you lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust decay and thieves break in and steal. Why don't you lay up treasures in heaven? That's where you're going. That's where Christ is. Now going temporarily until Christ brings that new heaven and new earth. But we seek the things above. Why do we do it? Because that's where Jesus is. That's where Christ is. And for us, I know it's a sentimental thing, and it's, it's meaningful. You think of your loved ones that have gone on uh, in, in death and are with the Lord, and we look forward to, in eternity, being with our loved ones. But how much more? In fact, there's a good gospel song, I want to see Jesus because the one, he's the one who died for me. That's the one that we, we love him. We love him. And we where Christ is, that's where our life is. We're stu- we still live. Now, we ought not love, you know, quit our jobs and sell all our possessions and wait on a hillside for Jesus to come, as many have done throughout the centuries. But in the course of our daily life, as we're changing oil in a truck or as we are any number of jobs that we have, as we're doing whatever we're doing, we're doing it as unto the Lord. We are honoring him. We're saying, I am bought with a price. I'm going to glorify God in my body. Whatever my hand finds to do, I'm going to do it for God's glory, for his honor, to give glory to Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. As different theologians, John Newton, for example, and others who, who said, you know, many things are true, but this I know. I'm a great sinner. But Jesus is a greater Savior. And it really comes down to that. Do you have any, if the issue is not just what's your bank account balance, what's your, you know, are you this health status or that health status, or have you been married, how many children do you have, how many grand, how great, great grandchildren do you have? If we can, I mean, we want upsmanship all the time, but if we can give glory to Christ and find our reason for being in him, that changes everything. That changes everything about how we live our lives. We are oriented. We are seeking the things above. We are seeking to be Christ's hands, his feet, his ears, his eyes, his nose, all the, you know, 1 Corinthians 12 kind of stuff and Romans 12 stuff that we have jobs, duties, roles to play in this world until he calls us home. Well, when's he going to call us home? When we've done the last thing, you know, is there a, a to-do list that he's given to us? Not that we know of in, in terms of, you know, what's my last or my final task before God calls me home? I have no idea, but be faithful. Be steadily faithful in what he has given to you right now for this moment, opportunities that we can steward. We are stewards, not just of people and things and stuff, but of moments, and what, how are we using those moments? Are we reflecting our identity in Christ, that he is our life? We are seeking after the things above. This is the idea of, of uh, pursuing or, or searching out for, not that we don't know where it is. Where is our life? Well, I don't know where I misplaced it or something. No, we, that is our affection. That is our goal. That is our, our orientation uh, that we are now set. We are, are locked on Christ. And when he is revealed, then we will be revealed with him in glory. Where Christ is, that is where our life is. That's where we are, are thinking. We are pursuing him. Remember how Jesus said in Matthew 6, and this is in the context even of, of food and, and, and clothing and shelter, and that people are worried and bothered all about these things. He says, Matthew six thirty three, seek first a healthy bank account. Make sure you have a pantry stocked with food. 
you know, I'm, I'm kidding. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all this other stuff, it'll be added to you. Oh, so I don't need to go out and work anymore because all of, no, that's presumption. That's not faith. That's not uh, being responsible with your time. But you seek first his kingdom and he will provide everything else that you need. Now, part of that, 2 Thessalonians 3 says, if man is not willing to work, neither let him eat. So there's that. I'm just going to assume God's going to provide for our, our daily bread. He gives us that. But you see, the orientation is I'm seeking first his kingdom, and he can provide through my labor, as, of course, was part of the curse for Adam back in the garden, and sweat and toil you'll work and all this kind of stuff. God provides through our labor, but he also provides for, through other people, just the generosity of, of, of other and kindness of other people meeting our needs. God is able to do it, but our orientation, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, it is an orientation of love. And lest you think, and many folks have unfortunately said it throughout the years, that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different from the God of the New Testament. And the relationship that the God's, God's people in the Old Testament had with God was different than the relationship we had. Do you know, if you are boil it down to the two greatest commandments, love God and love others, that commandment is not new, it's not novel to the New Testament. Jesus didn't just go come up with it out of, out of thin air. It's a quotation from Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5. It's Old Testament stuff. You shall love the Lord your God with our heart, soul, and, <clears throat> and strength. That idea of loving God is all through Deuteronomy. You think Deuteronomy, that's all about rules and regulations. But it boils down to this, love God. Cling to him, obey him, treasure him. And then all this other stuff uh, just is is a bonus. It's a that's a uh, God provides for these things. It's repeated in Joshua. Joshua after the conquest, he says, "All you who love God, you know, do this kind of thing." It's repeated all through the Psalms. Uh, it's repeated in Isaiah, uh, different places where the command, the instruction is to love God, to be oriented around Him. Unless we think, oh, it's just like Valentine's Day love, sentimental, emotional. I like God. He likes me. Let's go celebrate or have ice cream or something it's it's an affection it is an affection that then directs or influences behavior because i love my wife i am going to selflessly sacrificially serve her to seek her needs when we are loving christ then we lay down we're willing to lay down our lives for God, for Christ, for what he has done. What is my life but an opportunity to serve and to love Jesus, to adore him? Lest we think, again, that it's, it's purely sentimental or purely emotional or purely action-based, there's this idea of clinging to him. It's, it's as, as one would, would cling to a life preserver, being in a, in a tossed about in a, in a storm. Well, even if you are a powerful swimmer, you're going to get tired out. Isaiah 40 31 talks about um, those who wait on the Lord. When you wait on the Lord, when you trust in the Lord, when you love the Lord, when you cling to the Lord, he's the one who's able to give you strength and endurance through this difficult time. Our life is hidden. Our life is with Christ. We're going to seek the place, seek the things that are above, seeking where Christ is. We love him. We obey him. Jesus said in, in John 14, if you love me, then... You're going to send me notes, you know, little love notes every now and again. Or now he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But those commandments are not, again, things that are driving us forward to Christ. They're things that draw us closer to Christ. We, our affection is there. And therefore, 
this other stuff that we would normally think about and, and value in our lives, it, it pales in comparison to the glories that are, are ours in Christ. This is Paul's answer to sanctification, whereas the false teachers in Colossae would say, well, you've got to do this and that and the other thing. Paul says, forget about that. Christ has bought you. He has died for you. He has raised up for you, and you have died and been raised up with him. He is your life. He's the foundation for your life. As you draw closer to Christ, you won't be in love with the world. You won't be drawn aside to the right or to the left for the trappings of the world, the things that when, when, you, when you're looking at the glories of Christ and then you, you look at the, the paltry offerings that the world gives, they look pretty, pretty flashy and, and, and sparkly and, and whatever. But when you're looking at Christ, there's no comparison. At his right hand, Psalm 16 says, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And well, give me some of those pleasures. We'll draw near to him, and he'll draw near to you. You want help to to fight temptation in your life? You want an opportunity or or strength to, to, to bear under difficulty? Draw near to Christ. He is your life. He is your strength. Keep seeking. Seek after these things continuously as a, as a daily practice. I mean, it gets very practical. And it's not a to-do list like you've got to do it, but you want to do it. You love to do it. What, what am I saying? How do you seek the things above? Well, where, where do we learn about the things above? It's in God's Word. Are you reading the Scripture? Is it, is it something that, oh, I just got to read the Scripture? Is it something you delight to do? I mean, do you have to, there, there are certain things, I don't know, when I was a kid, I liked to read the, the comics and the Sunday paper, you know, get home from church and open the, the, the paper and, and get out that colorful section, read all the comics, Garfield and, and all this stuff. And I was drawn, nobody had to tell me, hey, get, you know, read this stuff. I was drawn to it. Are you drawn to Christ in that way? Are you drawn to his beauty, his simplicity? Are you drawn even to the Gospels to see how did Jesus interact? How, what, what was on his lips? How did he relate to the Father? How did he relate to his, his uh, uh, what's the word, knucklehead disciples? I mean, they were just like us, just, what, Jesus, what did you just say? And they're slow-witted and, and slow, heart of heart, and little faith kind of people, and yet Jesus interacted with them. And he wants us to interact with others in that same way, to imitate him, to follow his example. We set our minds, as the next verse says, we set our minds on those things, but we are seeking after. Because of what Christ has done, the implication here is seeking after those things and then setting our minds. It's not just a, uh, you know, if we, not just setting a little Jesus icon or, or a little, little cross or wearing a cross even. It is mindful thinking about Christ. It is like David said in Psalm 1, meditating on God's word day and night. It is praying without ceasing. As Paul says, this is the first lesson 5.17. He says, pray without ceasing. He says these different, and it's not, again, a requirement. It's not something that's, that's pushing us forward. It's something that's pulling us to Christ. It's a glorious thought that somehow our sanctification is not something that is something we need to, you know, to drum up or, or to, to, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps but it is something that draws us closer to Christ. And when we find and see the beauty that is in him and holiness and perfection and glory and light, 
then if we ever do look to the side <coughs> excuse me, and, and see what the world offers, we say, oh, what kind of stuff is that? When we have Christ, we have the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're seeking where Christ is. This idea at the end of verse 1, we'll have to look at next week, where Christ is. What it, where, what's he doing? He's in heaven, but he is seated at the right hand of God. What does that even signify? What does that mean for us? If Christ is our life, the Lord Jesus Christ, then our life is with him. We have died. We are raised up together with him. Because of that, everything is different. Everything. Paul said earlier that we should not allow other people to take us captive through persuasive argument and various things, away from the captivity we have in Christ. Again, the captivity is not a, not a cruel captivity. It is a love service. You remember there was an example in the Old Testament about slaves, and slavery is in the Old Testament. It's mandate, and we're going to see it in chapter later in chapter 3 and into chapter 4, I think, of, of Colossians about slavery and, and mastery and that kind of thing. Um, but there was a time when a slave could declare his allegiance, declare his loyalty, declare his love to his master and want to serve him the rest of his days, even though he could have been freed, gone off and done his own thing. He, remember that whole situation when, when the slave could go <clears throat> put his ear up against a, a door frame and have it pierced for uh, showing his allegiance, his loyalty, his love, his affection, his devotion to his master. Why? It's not because he had to. It wasn't forced upon him. It was because of his love for the master. He wanted to serve him. One of the big emphases, emphases in this uh, new Legacy Standard Bible translation is to translate that word, um, it's a Greek word, doulos, to translate it as not just as servant, as it appears in various uh, translations, but as slave. And you think, well, slavery is such a, a nasty term. Not when Jesus is the master. You love him, and he has nothing but your best interests at heart. Nothing but the best thing for you then it's, it's, it's a love. We respond to him. And when temptations come and we say, well, I could go over there and do this thing, well, how would that make Jesus feel? I think, well, that's kind of foolish, but do you love him? Do you love Jesus? And why are you going over here? Why are you going after this sin or this temptation? Why you think that's going to satisfy more than Jesus? Well, I can feel it better. I can taste it better. I can whatever, smell it better. Over here, I can't see, smell Jesus Really? That's that's your basis of, of going after that? But it is. I mean, why do we succumb to temptation? It's not because it is so attractive, really, so meaningful, so substantive. It's because somehow it promises things that it cannot deliver, right? One of the things about sin is that it is deceptive. It promises what it never gives, and it gives what it never promised. Wait a minute, I didn't think I'd get this disease or have this problems or, you know, you know, the prodigal son, he thought he was high living and ended up in ruination and despair, and he returned out of love to his father. He knew his father was good. He knew that his, his father would do what is right for him. He knew that that's where life is. That's what we do. That's the basis of our sanctification. Now, it's interesting, as Paul says here, set your minds on things above. Let's keep seeking those things above. But then all of his commands, if you will, beginning in verse 5 and through the end of the chapter and into chapter 4, are not so much heavenly stuff, you know, make sure, uh, you know, it's earthly stuff. Don't be greedy. Don't be involved in sexual immorality. Don't lie to another. 
live at peace. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Sing to one another. Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Parents, you know, don't exasperate your kids. All this stuff is, is earthy stuff. I mean, mundane, everyday kind of stuff. But that's how we set our minds on things above. When we are anchored and oriented toward Christ, our relationships are different. The way that we interact with difficulties and obstacles, um, challenges in our lives is different. If God is for me, who can be against me? It doesn't really matter. And if God is for me, why would I go after this sin or the thing that would draw me away from Christ when Christ is life and for me to go this other direction? How foolish is that? But we do it. We do it often. And to our shame and, and disrepair, Christ is our life. We ought, to, we ought to, but we want to seek those things which are above, the things not on the earth, as he says, uh, verse 2, not on the things that are on earth, but on where Christ is. He is our life. There is much more to be said on this passage, even in this verse, about this, but it, it's all about your orientation, your value, the value placed on Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The issue is sin. You think, well, I don't know if I value Jesus so much. I think maybe, I remember a friend of mine in high school said, I, I think, I, I know I ought to become a Christian, but I don't think I want to do it now. Later. Yeah, definitely before I die. The problem is, so you know when you're going to die? And, and you think, why would you not draw near to the glory, the beauty that Christ is now while you have time then put it off for decades? You're, you're mistaken and mistaken rather in terms of where you find meaningfulness, satisfaction, joy in life. Christ is the only answer. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your love, showing us the Lord Jesus Christ, hiding our lives in him, bringing us freedom from sin, freedom from the condemnation of sin, freedom from the power of sin in our daily life, daily lives, and in the future, freeing us even from the presence of sin. We look forward to that time when all things will be made subject to Christ. But in the meanwhile, please help us to subject ourselves to Christ, not in a, in a nasty, forced way, but because of love, because of affection, as that young lady loved the Lord Jesus Christ and anointed his feet with that precious oil and, and then wiped his feet with her hair out of love, out of appreciation. Please help us to have that same attitude, even the same posture of humble devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. It makes a difference in our lives. We pray that you would sanctify us daily. Please help us to uh, ourselves, our families, our children, our, our, our extended family, neighbors and co-workers, to see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and to say nothing else satisfies, nothing else even comes, compares to you. We are grateful that you have not abandoned us. You've not said, okay, you're saved. I'll see you in 40 years or something. But you're with us every day and you are our center, the center of our lives. We are to orient our lives around you. Not, again, because we're, we're forced to, but because we love you. Please save and sanctify. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.